Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Chad. I'm Tyler. We're Radio Silence. I'm Tom, and this is The Crawl. With Radio Silence. So today we have Ellen Freund with us. This was a really cool interview for us to do. Um, interestingly enough, this is um, one of our few guests that none of us have actually worked with. Um, but Ellen and I are friends. Um, and she has a really long history of working on some really incredible content in Hollywood. Uh, one of her more recent, more popular projects, she's a prop master of Mad Men, um, to the point where she was actually in charge of, they just did a big museum exhibit for it, and she was the one who curated it because she helped design and actually create all of those like accurate 1960s props for um, really just an incredible show. But she started out working on Roger Corman flicks back in the 1980s in the art department uh, before she even started specializing in props specifically, but she's worked with um, a lot of great filmmakers. She's worked with Robert Redford. She had, she's been on a few films with Sam Raimi, uh, including Drag Me to Hell, which I think is sort of a, a fan favorite of his. Um, she's been on Night at the Museum. She's been on a few Robin Williams projects like The Final mm-hmm. Cut and License to Wed. Mm-hmm. She's also part of uh, a cult favorite that I think Matt wants me to mention called Cherry 2000. Take it away. Yes. That's it. No, that's it. No, it's a great, it's a, it's a killer movie, and, and a lot of people really love it. She's had this really cool career where she's been on cult stuff, big stuff, television, features, low budget, uh, a lot of interesting stuff, and even through her own admissions, she's been on some stuff that's like, just whatever, just jobs that she does, but that's sort of the incredible part of somebody who's been working successfully in the industry for so long, and she shared a lot of really cool stories with us. Ellen. So before we get super into our conversation, um, I just wanted to let people know how we met. Because I think tonight's the first time that you've met Chad and Tyler and Matt, right? Correct. Yes. So Ellen and I met initially, my girlfriend, Jenny Wood, uh, you and Jenny worked together (laughs) on Mad Men, and that's how you guys met, right? Yes. Um, And then we met a couple of times at parties because you and Jenny had a good rapport. One of the stories that I wanted to bring up tonight, and I think it could be just a good intro story to, to what you do and what we're going to be talking about, is you host salons. That's one of the things that you do. Um, with a, You bring in just a lot of uh, young artists who just want to meet each other and meet people, and, and it's it's been really cool. They're at your house. Uh, and one of the things that, that you did with me the first time that I, I went to one of these, which I think was probably only the maybe the first or second time I was even at your house, um, was you you had found out that I was into horror films. And, and you've worked on a plethora of amazing projects. And you've also worked on sort of a number of classic and contemporary classic genre films. Um, and, and one of the genre films that you worked on was Drag Me to Hell, which is held in very high regard. I hold it in a high esteem. It's uh, a very fun movie to watch. I, I'm not exactly sure how popular it is i know horror fans love it yeah it's picking up too it's having like a 
It's yeah. a staying it's power. Yeah. So it's one of those movies that we're going to be talking about for a few years. I mean, we already are. We're talking about it. It's, you know, whatever, five years later now. Um, but I'm at your house. And so we're we're having a good time. And we're talking about horror movies. And we got on the subject, however. And you, you told me, oh, just, just stay here for a minute. And I'm sitting in your living room. And you went in, into, the, into your library. And you come back out. And you put a book in my hands. And it is the book from Drag Me to Hell that they look at like, this is the demon that's haunting you. And I'm just like, I, I, I have no idea what my face looked like at the time, but I remember what it felt like. It was just like one of these things that like holding this book was like meeting the star of the film. You know what I mean? And it's like, except it was like, the star of the film goes on to play other characters. This was the book. Right, like, this right. was the book that had like, you know, conjured the spirits and all of this kind of stuff. And it was really incredible. And I had no understanding even of the the practicality of how do you even make a book that's a fake book. Like, you didn't go to a publisher and, like, find this. And so you actually walked me through some of the steps of how you would, like, actually physically were able to make a prop like this. And, uh, yeah, that's just one of the stories that I tell people that, like, has impressed me about you because we sort of barely knew each other or just, like, we were still in the beginnings of our friendship and you were willing to, like, put this one-of-a-kind prop in my hand. I'm sure I had a drink in my hand, too. Mom, I wasn't drunk, but to everybody else, it was probably three sheets to the wind. Uh, and it's great, and I still tell the story. So was it one-of-a-kind prop, or do you have multiples of those on set? I think, or? I, I, think I made five of them. Five like, copies, with in pages? case somebody spills a drink on it. <laughs> right. With all the pages, we, essentially, that prop... Actually, first, I want to... What you say is emphasizes the importance of props Mm -hmm. because they do remain as that icon when everyone else does move on, when the actors move on, when the directors move on. But those things that make a character a character or drive story forward always stay there in that Sort of as, as an object. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the Maltese Falcon or something where you're like, if you had that, yeah. oh my yeah. God. And there's so often <laughs> some of the most memorable parts of the stories that we love. I know that the things that like make Indiana Jones Indiana Jones are his hat and his whip and I mean it's all of those. Grail. The idol. Yeah, yeah, but like the idol in that right, first scene. Idol. Like those right? are, you can see just that and you know what movie yeah. you're talking Do about. Do you remember the first time you realized that? That I realized the importance of that? Like, the, yeah. I don't know that I have... I know that what took me into props was the value of small things. That I am not a big picture person in the... The couches don't matter that much to me. It's nice right. on a good couch, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is what watch someone wears or what what they hold, what their bag looks like, how old it is, all those things. So I know that those objects have always been important to me, whether there was a distinct time when I realized in film they were important, they just have always been important in life. Right. So the people are those objects. I know that one of the very first one I collected was from... My own private Idaho, Gus Van Sant. Mm -hmm. There was a leather box that was the League of Spiritual... The Spiritual League. Anyway, an old leather box I had made and had painted with this logo that they use in the film. And I 
ended up with it in my possession. Right. Don't tell Gus. <laughs> <laughs> well, in case Gus is listening to this, right. uh, just give Ellen a free pass, okay, buddy? <laughs> um, and I just loved how it felt. I, felt. I loved its age. I loved the paint job. And over the years, I've had been lucky enough to be in possession of some other items, like one from uh, The Quick and the Dead, Sam Raimi, my first Sam Raimi movie. There was a chest of money, and it was an old Welsh Fargo chest lined with copper. And we have that, you've sat on it in our kitchen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so those things have always held that importance. Now back to the book. To create that character of Ramjas, who is uh, Dalip Rao, and I involved Dalip. I had a budget, and I sent him shopping to the Bodhi tree and mm-hmm. said, go buy $200 worth of books, because I want these books on your shelf that are things that Ramjas would have. And he was overjoyed to to do that so he went shopping and called me up i paid the bill and then i brought all those books back and had them on the shelf and then created the book that he had written the two books he'd written to so that they felt the same Mm -hmm. so i had an illustrator who they handed me he was one of the storyboard guys christian cordella is his name And he came to me and he drew the images. And some we took sort of from old books and then we adapted them. And then the original one, the one that was supposed to be our particular demon, he drew that from scratch and it went through many changes as Sam corrected it and whatever. And then I built the book and it had 12 pages repeated over and over. So if you keep going... Right. You'll mm-hmm. find it repeated through the book. And then bound in beautiful linen and gold foil stamped on the cover wow. on both of them. God, there's just so much craft within the craft of that one yeah. prop. So it's many literal people. Craft, like, yeah, like it's like yeah. it's like craftsmanship like you think when you think of the term craftsmanship a lot I, I at least in my mind I immediately go towards a carpenter. That's what I think of. Um my family is filled with carpenters, but when people tell me that like, you know, the way I make my money is editing, and I've been told that that's a craft. And I and while I believe it, it also seems like it's not. I'm I'm at a computer and I'm typing things out, and and it's creative work. I I don't doubt that, but it's just this weird. It doesn't feel tangible enough to me. But literally, what you do is craftsmanship. It's not like there's no way somebody could say that it isn't like. But it wasn't just me. It was the right. craftsmanship of the storyboard artist and his pen. Right, there's like sculpture it was the, and illustration it was the and writing and choosing the paper and whoever made that paper. Yeah. It was the book binder. It was the graphic designer who designed the logo type. Yeah. And, and then you are you those. and then you are you essentially coordinating? So I'm essentially a facilitator. Right. You're you're there to sort of collect those ideas yeah. and, and, and kind of funnel des- them into the, what, I like the to final. Think I add some design. <laughs> right. Well of course. <laughs> but I mean, is it I mean is it is I it, answer you, to a director always. Right. But it's sort of your your vision for what the prop will ultimately become you design that with the director and then you uh, you bring on a team to realize whatever that that creation. A team who may never meet the director. Right. Because and then it's jumping, jumping off of that, how much is in the script and the description? Like, what do you get 
No, very little. The, a book. It just says like a book, yeah. A very, very little. Just a book. Because there was another prop within that film, which is another version of the image of the Lamia, which is an illuminated manuscript, with which Christian also drew. And that was defined just as an illuminated, a page of an illuminated manuscript. So the, from there you have a myriad of choices mm -hmm. you can make as to what that might look like, how big it is, whether it's within right. a book of other pages, what so many things. And yeah. often my ideas, will, because a director has many things to think about, as you know, and I think about in comparison, very few things. So I, my ideas might be much, much bigger than he is prepared to deal with. So sometimes I'll say, well, we could have a whole shelf of books. We could have everything he's ever written up here. And we could have 10 copies of each because he's, he gives them to his clients who come for help. And a director might be thinking, this is way more than I can think, you know. So sometimes right. I can push for more. And sometimes if it's in my budget, I just do it anyway. I won't I won't go over my budget and do something that he hasn't asked for. But if I can make it that much better, even without asking permission, and still keep within my budget, then I might do that. So then outside of outside of these really iconic props like, you know, the book where do the prop master responsibilities extend outside? Well, should we of start with just for people who maybe yeah. have never worked with a prop master before, don't know what oh, yeah. that's a point. Just yeah. kind of a basic, how would you describe your role on set how, from or pre-production all the way through? A lot of people, yeah, they don't know. I can start with a, a quote from one of my favorite directors, Robert Benton, who wrote Bonnie and Clyde and directed some fine motion pictures. He turned to me one day and he said, Ellen, your job is everything that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> and honestly, that is sort of my job. My job is defined as anything that someone picks up, touches, or holds. That's how we define my Interesting. job. Yeah, okay. So the chair is not my job unless you pick up the chair, throw it through the window, then it becomes my job and the window becomes my job. Mm -hmm. So it's about interaction. So, it's about the cast or character interaction. Essentially, it's about mm -hmm. interaction. So if we're in this room and all of us are sitting in a chair and Tom was going to pick up and throw his chair, would this be like set deck, R3, mm -hmm. and then yes. Tom's would be yours? Yes. Okay. And set deck might weigh in on what it looks like. Right. But, but it becomes like a featured object once... And it's, you it's probably like have to make a fake one because maybe he's not strong enough to pick it up. And excuse, me, exactly. not. Yeah. <laughs> excuse me. Not or, the example I was looking for. Or maybe it needs to be made of rubber so the window doesn't break. Right. Okay. So then when do you get involved in the process? You're there for pre-production, obviously. I am there. Yes, I'm there for pre-production. I get a script and I break down that script, itemize everything that I think is a prop. And then I'll have a meeting. It depends if we're on television or a feature. I'll have a meeting with the director. I will have a meeting also with the designer. And the designer, production designer, is the head of my department. Okay. And prop people fall into two camps. Some prop people don't really feel like they're part of the art department. They feel like they are totally part of the director and the producer and design is incidental for me because i came up through 
the art side, I feel that the production designer is my guide to what I choose, to how I choose things, and also gets my ear first. So that when I go talk to the director, I'm not saying all the books should be read when the production designer thinks, oh, no, no red in this movie. Right. So I feel that I I have to take what sometimes a designer will sit in on meetings with me. That used to be more true when we had longer production times. Now I'm likely to get on a movie and have only four weeks of prep. And the designer might have only had seven or eight weeks of prep. So that when you're dealing with that condensed time frame, you might not have the time for him to sit in on your meeting. But I still want to go armed with his ideas. Or at least give him the respect of discussing anything he wants to discuss with me before I make a decision based on what the director wants. Now the director, what the director wants usually will override what the designer wants. But that enables me to steer the director a little bit to create a cohesion that the designer will want in the visuals of the film. I'll also meet often with the DP and see what they want. What looks best, right. And uh, certainly with things that might have a reflective quality or might vibrate Mm -hmm. or stripes or um, even on the last movie I did, I had a baby cam that he was going to actually shoot it, but he had me get him a baby cam so he could see what that looked like and he could, you know, design his shots from there. Where's the line between costume, say, and what the prop master's job is? Well, hence hence the everything that no one else wants to do. Sometimes I'll work with a costume designer who, if it touches the body, eyeglasses, for instance, are props. Right. But sometimes a costume designer will want to dictate all of those things. So mm, the watches sometimes, I do wedding rings, uh, they do decorative rings, and I do wedding rings. Um, I do glasses, but sometimes they'll weigh in on them. Sometimes it'll so be really just a about the roller skates, and, yeah. you know, that might be costume, it might be props. It depends who... Sometimes it's who has the relationship with the actor. If you're putting a big, big star in roller skates, they might feel more comfortable making sure they fit properly. Say they're old-fashioned boot kind. Or they might feel more comfortable with me knowing that I'm going to check out all the safety issues of the roller skates. So it just did... Our prime importance is making a director happy and making an actor comfortable. Because if an actor is comfortable, then they don't become removed from their characters. And every prop master is different. And historically, it's different. There were two schools. I came up through the non-union Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. And that was a very different world than someone who was born on a studio lot and came up in the union. I had to do everything. Right. You know, and I, the, my first jobs at Roger Corman, I did, I kind of built the sets and dressed the sets and coddled the actors. And I was usually the only female. So if there was any tension with a woman actor, they would send me in to talk to her. 
It was an amazing experience working for Roger Corman. And my office there was up in, it was a on um, Lincoln Boulevard. It was an old lumber company is where his studio was. It was called Hammond Lumber. And it's no longer there. Now it's condos, I think. And it was an old lumber yard, and he built these stages, sort of <laughs> stages. And the, over in one side was a building that was two stories. Underneath would have been lumber storage, and upstairs was now the editing room. And my office was sort of around the corner from the editing room. I had a little desk there and a telephone. <laughs> All you had. Yeah. It was pre-computers, right? Roger Corman would come in every couple of days and look at cu- the rough cuts of the films on the Moviola, screened on the Moviola. Mm-hmm. A screen this big. Oh, yeah. It's a, like, <laughs> six really inches, inches across, six maybe. Inches I don't know. Yeah. And listening to him was a total education because he would say, cut this, lose that, add that change this and it was there was he was so decisive and he was the king pin oh, he was well you were working uh, we're not dating you but i think it was sometime in the 80s you were working with roger corman uh yes so roger corman was actually a well-established filmmaker at this point it was not like you were working with sort of the up-and-coming roger this is like this is what 20 30 years after roger corman had already established himself as the king of b pictures importing foreign cinema because of course Roger Corman brought us a lot of the French New Wave which a lot of people don't remember like he's sort of he's been he's still making movies mm-hmm. I mean the guy is still he, he actively producing birthday, films he turned like 90 yeah and he's he's yeah. still he has a deal with Sci-Fi Channel right now like he is making he's he created an entire new it. way or recreated a way of making things that I think influences like the whole internet generation the way oh, he makes he's, kind of the original, yeah. he's like is, the original DIY yeah I mean, yeah, yeah like, I, I can't tell you how many times. Just to hear that you work there is exciting for us, because for us, that whole model of making things, of, like, cool, fuck everybody else, go do it, yeah. is entirely the same you ethic. Have been and same. No, 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 you're, right. you're yeah. absolutely like, right. It is. And his financing was... I, I don't know this to be true, but this was the story I was always told when I was working there, was that he would have a movie that would cost $2 million, and he would finance it through however he did he would get nine hundred and ninety thousand dollars from somebody so that he still had complete control and then he would make the film and he would say it would be a two million dollar movie but he would make it for one million right and so he already (laughs) so he he already had well uh, yes and that that he already had a profit before he ever made the film. Yeah. That's that was the story yeah. I was told. And it, to me, it seems that it is very much like what you can do now. It really that is. Every, and couldn't happen when I was in film school because making a film was really, really expensive. And it couldn't really then either, but he made it work, which is why it's so inspiring, mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, wow. Because now it's... I mean, one of the things we always talk about is when you hear people say man, someday I'm going to go make this thing. It's sort of like, well, shut up and go do it because yeah. you have no excuses. There right. used to be excuses. You got a telephone? <laughs> yeah, now yeah. it's like, yeah, this phone is better than any camera, even when I was in school, that existed. Like, oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah but the yeah. stories Even were... when I was in school, and like, I'm a lot younger than you. <laughs> you are a lot younger. People can't see Matt. He's very old. <laughs> we're dating Matt as well. But the I... style of storytelling was, was, all, was all built around what 
he had access, access to, to what he was actually like, able to to do and it's why i mean it's why in so many ways i mean he kind of created his own genre and in had a way sex and violence and had sex and violence well that, i mean that was just a sideline because at the same time james cameron was, was there right. designing giant right. space movies right or things that were much grander which were not the things i worked on how long were you there uh, on and off a couple of years. I don't know. Um, I moved from there into, I went to work with uh, his production designer, a man who lived on a school bus on the property of Hammond Lumber. Uh, his name was Philip Thomas, really lovely guy. And I think his wife might have been the decorator, a girlfriend, and I think she lived on the bus too. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Wow. Yeah, I would love to live on a bus. Yeah. The good old days. Yeah, but there were a lot, a number of, at that point I did a lot of horror movies. Well, yeah, because I mean, you, so you did a number, well, a genre in general, because you had this Roger Corman stuff and then you worked on Masters of the Universe, right? Was yeah, that, that was Corman? much later. That was in okay. the fancier days. Oh, was okay. Cherry That's when Roger Corman or no? Ch- no. Right? But it, it pretty well directly led me to Cherry 2000. The, my connections, my... My first first was a movie called Silent Scream, and which I saw Silent Scream and Firecracker as a double bill down at what is the theater? The Galaxy Dude, on Hollywood really? Boulevard. Oh, is that one of the old movie oh, theaters? Oh, like over by Vine. The, yeah, yeah. Re- divey one, really yeah. divey one oh, that yeah, did a lot yeah. of double features. That was my fir- the first time I ever got to see my name on screen. It was so exciting. Wow. <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> on Hollywood wow, that's Boulevard. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> wow. And <laughs> then I went to, I went and did a film in Texas, which was not a horror movie, but was a, an interesting film called Handgun. And then I graduated film school, moved to London with my student film. I had done a student film. I moved to London because I'd always wanted to live there. And I got jobs as an assistant editor. I had been trained. My father was a film editor. My father had worked on I Love Lucy and on he'd worked for John Ford as an apprentice editor. Wow. He wow. did he uh, got involved with Desi Lou. He so and eventually ended up moving into commercials later in his career and so i knew my way around assistant editing on film now i'd be lost (laughs) i I would be lost too trust me on that and i had always wanted to live in london so i took my film school film and i moved to london and people were more than happy to see me i met with um hugh hudson who was making chariots of fire he he met me other a bunch of other people in Ridley Scott's company. People were so happy to meet me because they couldn't figure out why someone from Hollywood would move to London. <laughs> it was just this totally, and so they'd watch my student film, you know, in sixteen millimeter. I'd put it up and show them my film, and eventually I got some work doing silly assistant editing jobs. Um, 
I got some editing jobs cutting together films for the Kenyan post office. Things like how to mail a letter, you know. <laughs> Don't put the stamp in the envelope. You buy the stamp and you put it on the envelope. So, All right. <laughs> it was important public service. But the unions were really strong and I couldn't make a living and I was a really bad waitress in a Greek restaurant. And <laughs> then I, I came home from there when I was offered Silent Scream. Okay. So came back, did that. Did as an some no, as a, as a general art department. I hadn't found my way into props really yet. And had you worked in art department before Silent Scream? Had you? Yeah. Had you, okay. So yes. You and then I sort of worked. My, I got a few jobs as a set decorator, which, like I said before, it's not really my thing. The big picture's not. I've I've never really wanted to get to do that. And I ended up going to Dallas on a film as a set decorator, but sort of my, worked my way into the prop job because it was just more up my alley. And when I came back from that is when I was offered Cherry 2000, which the first film I had ever worked on, the director was Steve DeJarnett right. of a short Very film fun. called Tarzana. And he, we were friends from Tarzana his first film, and then he offered me Cherry 2000. We went off to Nevada, and that was the start of my... That was my first job. It was a big job. So that was your first job as... As a prop master, really. Wow, wow. That was my first... That's a pretty good first job. Yeah, it was totally intimidating. I hired an assistant. I said, I have no clue what I'm doing. (laughs) So that seems to be, by the way, Can you let me know... You know, if I'm doing something wrong, <laughs> because I don't, you know, because I'm not sure who all of my responsibilities are. So let me know. It's so funny. We've taught, we've, our, our own experience has been that. And so far, the other people we've had in here to interview have basically said some version of all the same thing where they're like, and then my first job, I had no idea what I was doing, which is so interesting when you think about it, because you obviously did a great job on that. And then you went on to have a career literally ever since. Yeah. So it's really something you said for. Yeah, and you don't know until you're on. You're lying, you're not a lie. Yeah. <laughs> but also that you're you're kind of hired in a way because of the way you were able to communicate, right? Regardless of what you understood in a tactile sense about the job, that you were able to communicate well with the other people who are who are making decisions. I mean, that's that's so incredibly valuable. Ultimately, I mean, it, really. And then you, the team that you put in place, an assistant or whoever else then works with you, can fill in the other parts of that job. But that's a you make it sound much more considered than I think it was. We were non-union filmmaking. Right, right. We There was not much money. And the director said, I want her. He didn't know. It was his first feature film. And there I was. So then on something like that, like, because you're saying that it wasn't as thought out, like, is it... Because that is a very specific movie, like, down to the props the set deck the you know production design everything about it so for a movie like that with such a low budget non-union how much of that are you handling like on on that movie like was that oh, were you i handled my whole job but it was <laughs> it like, i hired a very oh no, well anytime you deal with guns you have to have someone right. who know what, right. what they knows what they're doing <laughs> and everybody understands that Everyone, yeah. I mean, sometimes we get reminded in awful ways that we have right. to keep on top of that. But I've always hated guns. 
So anytime I've been involved in anything dealing with guns, I've always gotten the best, absolute best people I can get. So I had a team of gun people. Right. And that's what they did. And I had, there were a bunch of animals. I don't know if you remember all the chickens that were dyed funny colors. Yeah, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) And uh, yeah, Props also does vehicles. We used to, I used, now Transpo kind of chooses vehicles with the director. But it used to be that I would choose the vehicles. With the director. What about, is, it, is and, there like a big helicopter scene in that? Yeah, helicopters have been, are not, not really okay. my, although they're, in some ways it could, airplanes, boats, sometimes tie into props. It just depends who else is there and who's interested in what. Right. Usually I'm in charge of animals, but these days producers seem to make the animal deals, which is totally fine with me. But... It used to be that I would get the Wrangler, choose the animals, and give them their call times. So what do you look for like in a collaborator? Like what do you what what's like your ideal, you know, director or production designer or someone who you work with? Like what makes your job the best version of it? I like a strong leader. I like someone who has ideas and it's always great to be treated with respect. And to have someone feel your job is important. Worst case scenario is when you have a story, which I had one, where the prop had to tell the story and the director didn't spend the time with me figuring it out. And I think somehow he didn't understand that the prop had to tell the story. That in order to understand what this character had done in a land insurance scam. You had to read the book that shows the names of the people he scammed. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand who got scammed. And I worked diligently trying to figure out what should be in the book. But both the director and the production designer were so busy with their own worlds that they never understood this right and so they never really shot it so you i think the movie sort of missed a big portion of its story because of that do you really make sense do you have a chance to go say like hey guys you or is that like overstepping bounds yeah i can do it but do you might not get a response i went to the designer and said here's how i see it and she said, yeah, that's right. You have to do that, that, and that. So I did that and that and that, but I can't make the director shoot it. Right. And it didn't really get shot. You can't just like stand on, right. on no. the side of the set and be like, you're fucking up. Right. No, not in this case. In some cases I could. In some, I mean, I wouldn't say you're fucking up, but I might say, I might tell somebody it's important. Right. Although I've witnessed Sam Raimi turn to the crew and say, everyone's point of view is important. Everything you have to say is important. And then if the craft service guy made a suggestion, he'd be like, who are you? (laughs) 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 So, (laughs) you know, I mean, that is nothing ill on Sam. He's he's the most lovely man in the world. So the the amount of respect also translates to you wanting to be there and wanting to do your job. 
And uh, there's something I've noticed more. I took a, I had never done television before uh, 10 years ago. I started almost 10 years, uh, eight years ago. I started on uh, Mad Men. I took over in the middle of the third season and I had never done TV. So I had an enormous learning curve. I had, I had always thought TV was easy. Everyone always made fun of TV. TV is so much <laughs> yeah, harder. Period. It's so like much harder than than movies because you don't. Yeah. Well, you don't have time to prep. You don't have your scripts aren't there, and you get a script and then within five days you're shooting it. And there's so many right. characters too. A, a show like Mad Men, you. It's. I mean, it's such an ensemble, and, I, and yeah. of course, all the props have to be. Well, hopefully they've been, most of those props have hopefully been established, but you have new locations and you might have five restaurant scenes to shoot in eight days and you have to create the menus and you have to plan on the food and you have to create checks and and ashtrays and uh, matchbooks and... All of the other things that, and choose the dishware. Is that five day window like kind of like the way it ran on Mad Men was like script? We had eight days of shooting on each episode. Okay. And there was a double up day where you were shooting the last day of one episode and the first day of the next episode. And on that day or the next day, you would, a new script would land on your desk. For the following episode. Wow. So my first episode that I did by myself. I got to day one of the episode and I was, I had been in my office in tears every day, you know, like (laughs) this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, get them, get my crew out there shooting day one of my first episode. And I show back up at my office and sitting on my desk is a new script. (laughs) (laughs) It's a revolving door of stress and anxiety. (laughs) So then you have a concept meeting and then you have a prop meeting and then you have production meeting and you start shooting that seven days later from when you had that script. And And you might not know you might not have all the information yet and you might not have your cast and I mean it's certainly even harder on costumes who have to fit people they've never seen right and things are probably changing yeah. at least I a mean, watch band I can adjust is it sourcing or creating too like is both like both, both. So you have absolutely to, both and you have you were able to get people to create new things for you in that type of window you have to is that more creative or budget like are we like problem solving creatively and like trying to figure ways to like tweak things or is it like a money just throw money at it yeah, yeah. With, especially well, with we didn't like have that, that much money like... to throw at it my budget for each episode was somewhere between 15 and twenty thousand, depending on the episode right and i think my pattern was supposed to be sixteen thousand, and so you didn't have a lot of money to th- throw at things so creatively how are problems solved because i think that's a good thing that we like to get (laughs) well any way you can sometimes throwing money at it wouldn't necessarily help because you can't for instance i had to do a canned ham a canned ham doesn't look the same as they look now the cans are just totally different and even if i could find a can which i did that came from norway that was fully a can it wasn't the right depth of the can, and it didn't open with the key the way a canned ham would open. So I had to have it built. And luckily, my brother 
came to the rescue on that one. He's a little master builder. And, uh, what a lucky amazing, you know, yeah. built that, I've got a can ham project that for can you, ham. bro. And, but you might not have had, if you have to mold something or make right. something, you might not have that time window. Some things they would give you more time, like if they knew they were going to do the Playboy Club. They warned us about three weeks out, three or four weeks out, because that was gigantic for everybody to try and gather all those things and make that happen. And then what about the research process for that? Like once you get to the show, I'm sure it's like final. I'm like, cool. Like, how do you get into the, that era? Uh, it's, it's so much fun. It's, it's so fantastic. We would start each season knowing what year we were going to be in. And I would order every magazine I could get my hands on. And then my crew and I would spend every morning, about an hour, every morning while we before we started shooting. Because well, I would have a three-week prep or four-week prep before we started the season. And every morning we would just rip out pages. Liquor, jewelry, sporting goods, anything for that year. And build files of everything like that. So that if I was doing an airport, I would have pictures of luggage. I would have, and you and it was such an amazing way to prove it existed. Right. So that I could magazines are just an amazing source. Now, fashion is a a little different. The Sears catalog was a little better for what everyday people wore, because Vogue magazine isn't. It's not what everyone's wearing, and you also have to remember that. What you wear, you probably bought two years ago, or you, right. you know, you you keep. I still wear clothes I've been wearing twenty years, you know. So I mean, we are. I think we wear the same day. thing every day. Your, your <laughs> eyeglasses, your whatever it is, it's probably not this so year. If you're model. like in nineteen like sixty nine, you might have to look at nineteen sixty six. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So so with that level of detail and with that attention to detail, how do you know when you can kind of bend? The rules. I mean, you're talking about like can- just go and uh, well, no, well, like well, you have a canned ham, and you're talking about wanting to source a can that's the same size as the can that existed during that time period. How do you know? And obviously, you I, as a as an artist, you want it all to be as accurate as possible. But how do you know where the line is and where you can kind of blur things a little bit, or do or do you not? Do you just work until tirelessly until it's perfect? Well, and that was my point. Actually, that's how I got to the subject. On Mad Men, we didn't. We did not ever settle. We worked until we had it exactly right. Because, and it shows partially show. because yeah. Matthew Weiner is... Right, his attention to detail. His, amazing yeah. in that way. And partially because the blogosphere... Was relentless. Well, yeah, and if anything was wrong, it would be all over the place. Yeah, and because of these, because of magazines, because you're in a period that is actually incredibly well documented, people know without even like there is some random person who accidentally found out that something wasn't was anachronistic. And then there are eight hundred people who agreed. I knew it too. Well exactly. And then yeah. So So you can't you can't give us any anachronisms that exist, like any kind of secret. (laughs) I heard a rumor. Absolutely. You can find them all over the internet. Some are true, some aren't. 
Some people just don't. There was a big deal about the pink bakery box in New York saying, oh, pink bakery boxes didn't exist. But the person I talked to who was there said they did exist. Right. So I, who do you believe? I don't know. Yeah. I would believe I, the I believe, person who did the research I or not the person who yeah. just decided I, to I would be... also believe the person who was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I don't know. And, I tend to believe all everything of our I memories, read on the blogosphere. All our memories are faulty. Yeah. We remember right. what yeah. we choose to remember. Very true. Yeah. I don't remember. And that was one of the beauties of Matt Weiner also was he knew he wasn't there. He's younger... He's, a, he's just a hair too young to have been there. So he would often remember things thinking they were from the 60s and they were actually from the early 70s. And we'd have to come to him and say, you know what, you can't use that bowl or something that he would specifically call out. You spoke a bit about what you look for in a collaborative relationship. But if you were sent two scripts and you were making a choice, you had to make a choice what project to work on, what excites you when you are reading something, what makes you say this would be a fun, creative venture for me to get involved in? Well, there's a number of things I might look for. I, I, I mean, if Sam Raimi comes calling, I say yes, no matter what. Right. Because he not only always works on quality projects of whatever genre, but he is a pleasure to work with in the, in a pleasure to be around he has, he's funny, he's fun, he has great ideas, he has a lot of respect for his crew. And so that, I don't care what the script is, I would say yes. If I was handed two scripts with people I don't know, I would look for a good story. Because nothing beats a good story. Yeah, so regardless I of did, the things that might speak to you on a prop level, just yeah. story first. Story first. Seems to be saying because for really everyone wants to work on good movies right, rather right. than mediocre movies. Mm-hmm. So I love period. That's fun for me to do, but I give me a good story. I also happen to have a few little minor passions of my own. Like I love music, so if a story has music or musicians in it, I get really excited about that. And I've done a few things like that that have made them really fun. I did a movie a couple of years ago called, um, well, when we shot it, it was called Imagined. And it was one of the best scripts I've ever read. A man named Daniel Fogelman oh, yeah. wrote it. And it came out as a movie called Danny Collins. I think the marketing people did a horrible job because it nobody ever saw it. It was Al Pacino. Yeah. And it was, it was a wonderful movie. I don't know if it was quite as good as the script, but it was it was really good. Al Pacino was great. It was and it involved he played an aging rock star a la Rod Stewart and Got sort of water. Elton John Rod Stewart. Yeah. And it was just an amazing story. And then getting to also do the music and it's choosing instruments for people and all that stuff's really fun. So I would I would always have a little joy of that. I don't like guns, so I try to avoid gun movies. For a while I had a reputation as being a gun prop master because I guess because I hated them so much that I was always so super attentive and careful that I um people started hiring me just well, to do because what <laughs> what you just said like when you were at, like you're on like the Quick and the Dead and you hired the best gun guys in the business, well 
yeah, if you're getting the best and the best is part of your department, I'm going to hire you for that. Yeah. Like, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you hire me, you're only going to get the best. That's the downside. No. Okay. <laughs> like, great. Yeah. So then do you have a, a, a particular personal love for the horror genre? I mean, there are a lot of those in your past. And is there something particularly fun about working in that style of filmmaking? You know, I, I, my career is accidental. Everything in my career is accidental. Everything in most of our careers is accidental. So the fact that I did a few really amazing horror movies, Pet Cemetery, and uh, Drag Me to Hell, uh, it purely just, it just happened. I can't say it's something I would choose. That's That said, those movies do bring in a freedom in the creative areas of the film that you might not find in a costume drama or in a relationship drama. Is there a part of your job that you just don't look forward to? Is there something that's like, <laughs> oh, we got to do yeah, this? Your I job, love... actually, like today, it really sounds like the best job the in best the whole thing, movie. Right. Like, it really I, does. Is there, is there something that's kind of regular that, that you have to do on every film that's just the kind of, the, what's the dregs of working in as a prop master oh gosh it depends on my attitude it depends on the day <laughs> you know people could be difficult i mean sometimes there's too many opinions that get between too many producers um that can be distressing and difficult to deal with sometimes you have actors who you have to teach something to like how to use a computer or, you know, the, the skill that an actor is supposed to possess, like cake decorating. And you have to get with this actor and teach them to cake decorate. And every once in a while, they're really into it. And more often than not, they couldn't care less. Right. They're being directed by somebody that's not the director. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean... or they they just don't, they feel like it'll, it'll be fine in the editing. Yeah. They don't have a... Some actors have a passion to learn what it is that they're doing, and others don't. And sometimes if they can't learn, if they don't learn, then it slows things down on the other end, and then you get the blame because you haven't really taught them how to look good when they're cake decorating. Are, and actors, like, are actors one of the most difficult parts of the process? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Just put it out there. They, <laughs> Says Chad, whose face is on everything for SoundCloud. They they can they can be they can be, and sometimes they're the most amazing part of it. Sometimes they're fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes they are also the glue that keeps the crew together. But often they can be. They can be difficult. When we uh, first started working together, there we would go to the to HPR, the hand prop room, which is down on what Venice. Is it? Venice. Venice. Venice, and sometimes we'd, we'd walk around the aisles of that place, which are you know floor to, it's floor the fancy to ceiling, one. stacked full of interesting things. And if there were parts of the story that we wanted to tell that we we didn't know specifically what was going to be happening, we were actually inspired yeah, by kind of the things that we story. were. You know, I mean, it was. 
I, I remember with yeah you know, the treasure hunt. It was we gotta have like this big climactic scene. What are we gonna? What's it gonna be? And we found these amazing idols. Idols. It's like there's no, but there's idols. those Civil War yeah, era swords. Swords. Yeah. And it was like oh well, swords, obviously yeah. it needs to be a sword fight. Well, that's the other part of props is making something look dangerous when it's not, and you know in the hands you don't want to give an actor anything that they could actually hurt themselves with. So. Have you, I mean, uh, maybe we don't need to use names specifically. Have you ever experienced sort of an accident on set where somebody has been hurt, even though like the precautions have been taken? No. No. That's great. That's fantastic. No. I've been on sets where that's happened just because somehow people can still hurt themselves with dulled instruments. Like, yeah. I've seen falls go awry. Or, sure. Yeah. Those, no. those kind of stunts, but I, luckily. But no. like nothing Nothing on related. my watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the I actually times? did something really stupid early in my career. It's really embarrassing. Let it out. Let it out. You brought it up. You brought it up. Um, it, with a helicopter... A car and a helicopter and someone was waving a tire iron and I had a rubber tire iron, but it had a metal rod in it and got very close to the rotors of the helicopter. Luckily, nothing happened, but I learned that that was a really, really stupid thing to do. What are some of the kinds of precautions that you would take in a, sort of anything? Well, you try to think of everything. Right. You know, but... you, you usually if you have a good assistant director, and most assistant directors are good because that's what they, they're trained to think of everything, mm-hmm. and that's what they do. Um, it's just thinking and thinking and not panicking and remembering not to get flustered. Sure. Not to let the pressure of waiting on props, waiting on props, get in the way of you doing what you feel is right and safe. And to not be pressured into doing things that are, that you know are wrong. Sure. And being willing to be the one who stands up and says, I, I, I can't support that. So you, you talked a little bit about some of your favorite props. Tell us more about some of the things that you've that you've both fabricated for projects that you are have been a part of, and also outside of that. Like, what are the what are the kind of iconic? Sounds like what you're asking is what 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 are you like most proud of? What you've done? Yeah, we're bookending the conversation with a book. Is so hard, <laughs> but also so but hard. also in movies that you know that you like the Maltese Falcon or the Idol in Indiana Jones. Yeah. Are there other things? That I you, wish I I wish I had one of those. Like, if you could have any prop, any prop, <laughs> Ellen, Ellen. <laughs> You, you, you have Mad Men. Like Mad Men is the Indiana Jones of TV. Like you've got that. Like you do. You have these movies like Quick and the Dead and Drag Me to Hell, where yeah. where the props do God. survive. Yeah, I I think for me, once again, I gotta say, story, story, story. Right. If it doesn't have a story, then it's not. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And so for me, I'm really proud of the work I did on A River Runs Through It because everything looked perfect. Everything looked amazing. And the people that I got to meet who were experts at what at fly fishing and the, the old guys who had been around tying flies with Norman McLean and that taught me what I needed to get and taught me how to do it. I couldn't actually do it, but it made me understand what was right. 
that's that is so fantastic being in new orleans and doing all the king's men i mean i think it was flawed but still visually it was so fantastic everything about it was fantastic um one of the things i got to do on all the king's men was we had a scene in a nightclub where kebmo plays and he showed up with t-bone burnett who was our music supervisor and and i'm totally starstruck t-bone burnett is so amazing and we, I got to take, he said, well, uh, we don't have a guitar. Because I, I thought they were bringing their own guitar. And I, so in the morning I had to wake some guy up who had a vintage guitar store in New Orleans. He opened up and I went with T-Bone Burnett and Keb Mo, and they went and played all the guitars <laughs> wow. to see which one he was going to, which one he liked. Wow. And it was just one of those moments where, that is so fantastic. Yeah, so and, it sounds like, it, I mean, in addition to, obviously, the story that you're telling, the, the the film story you're telling, you're you have all of these amazing side stories that exist because of how you source all of these oh, things. Yeah. I mean, that's a, what a, what an amazing. Yeah. So in your in your in your brushes with all of these different s- sort of side crafts, is there anything that you've ever felt a draw to? Like, oh, hey, I could do that. I could be a glass blower. I could make oh, saddles. Like, oh, I could tie. Uh, I could tie fly fishing. I long uh, on uh, home for the holidays. We had to teach Holly Hunter how to do art restoration. And that so I had somebody there teaching her what to do and teaching her about gold leaf. And we did wonderful inserts of them making egg tempera with an egg yolk, making the paint. And I, I mean, yes, there's, I often think I would, but really I'm trained for nothing except props. (laughs) I keep thinking there's another outlet, but uh, for my skills, but there really isn't. (laughs) <laughs> there's yeah. there's nothing you the film business is a is a business that totally spoils you because every day is different and we're paid well and we get free time and so when you try to get away from the overwhelming nature of the film business which after 30 some odd years in it 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 is it's really you get a little tired of being with 150 of your closest friends every day and maybe look for something else but every time I try to step out into the real world and do another job I realize that there 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 isn't another it isn't you, you once you're here, you're consumed by it. All right, guys, that was The Crawl. Thanks for listening. So make sure to tune in next week when we talk to Andrew Spieler, a very accomplished assistant director uh, who's worked on a number of features and TV shows and shared a lot of cool insight into that process with us. Hit us up on Twitter at High Radio Silence. Hit us up on the website at highradiosilence.com. And you can find all our next episodes at the website.